to hurt the black man and avoid the Jew is the curriculum in mid-September. The entering boy is identified by hats wander in a maze of mannered brick where boxwood and magnolia brood and columns with imperious stance like rows of antebellum girls eye them, outlanders. In whited cells on lawns equipped for peace, under the arch and lofty banister, equals shake hands, unequals blankly pass. The exemplary weather whispers, quiet, quiet, and on the separate hills, the colleges, like manor houses of an older law, humor the snob and lure the lout. Within the precincts of this world, poise is a club. But on the neighboring range, misty and high, the past is absolute. Some luckless race, dull with inbreeding and conformity, wears out its heart and comes barefoot and bad for charity or jail. That famous poem entitled University was written over 100 years ago now. But for many, that isolated feeling it endures, for that is how many, like the poet himself, perceived his arrival at college. For the poet, Carl Shapiro, was a Jewish freshman at a top university in Virginia. And as a Jewish man uh, living in the 1930s, and as a man from the poor neighboring state, very, very sadly, Shapiro knew that from his very first day of college that he would be an outlander at university. Incredible intellect had brought him, uh, this Jewish man from lowly Baltimore, but Shapiro knew that he would only be able to shake hands under the archways and lofty banisters and have poise within the precincts of this world and not be seen as an outlander if, if he rejected his upbringing and his religion and conformed to the powerful people of his day. Friends, whether you went to uh, university many years ago, or whether you look forward to university in the next uh, few years, or whether you never went to college at all, I, I wonder, I wonder if that is how you feel in the precincts of this world. Because you see, if you're a Christian, if you're, if you're a student of God, and by that I mean someone who trusts in God's Son and in His death alone to make you right before God, and someone who is looking to follow their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in every area of life, and not somebody who just ticks Christian on the census form and likes eating a lot of chocolate at Easter. If you're a Christian, a true student of God, you will be an outlander on the campus of this world. Someone who has another home. Someone who comes from the neighboring hill. Someone who is from a perceived luckless race. For that is what God's son endured in his three years of teaching at the university of this world. Jesus said, uh, Luke chapter 6, the student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Uh, and John 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And so though you and I may not like to think of ourselves as, as the ostracized minority freshmen of society, 
And then we may hope to straddle the, the divide of, of church and, 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 and cool college crowd. Brothers and sisters, all across history, that has been the standard Christian experience to be seen as outlanders. And so, my friends, as you sit here this morning, I wonder if that is how you do feel as a student of God in the university of this world. And accordingly, I wonder where you feel that the greatest pull to conform and in what lessons you still feel at your Christian foundations beginning to wobble. And particularly, particularly if you are a young person here who has been following Christ but just a few years and is looking ahead now to the future, what type of student are you hoping to be in the 2020s and the 2030s when you will most likely make the most key decisions of your life? Will you or should you totally cut yourself off from the campus of this world? becoming a student who avoids all lectures and socialization and hides in their dorm room? Or will you or should you not draw any lines at all at the university of life, becoming a student who just dives into the syllabus of our culture and goes to every dorm room party, trusting that you will just know when to put down the textbook of life and when to leave all the revelry? My Christian friends, whether we are seniors or freshmen on such a campus as ours, what must all students of God know? What must all students of God know? Well, this morning we set out in a new series in the book of Daniel, a book which is all about being away from home, and a book which is all about living courageously at the university of this passing world. And so a book which asks us how we should live here, and not only that, but also how we should love other students here, particularly those who desire that we fit in here. For at the start of this book, we meet four bright Jewish undergraduates, four outlanders, just like Carl Shapiro, and we shall watch these four teenage boys rise to stardom whilst being away from home. For in this series, we shall plot the lives of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and the key events in their lives. As they graduate with honors from the freshman common room here in chapter 1 to the Capitol building itself in chapter 6. So just to quickly remind you of where we are this morning in history, uh, the year here in chapter 1 is the year 605 BC, that's 600 years before Jesus Christ. And as verse 1 tells us, and do look there please, the hungry Babylonian empire under the reign of the greedy King Nebuchadnezzar had besieged Jerusalem and had begun to devour it. After centuries of warning for God's people, finally the end was nigh for Jerusalem for the wicked king Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had risen up against Babylon and was brutally killed. And although Judah would not be finally consumed for another 20 years from this point, uh, when the final king, King Zedekiah, watched all the princes of Israel murdered and then had his eyes put out, the cruel Babylonian locust here in the year 605 BC was already devouring God's land. And they started with the cream of the crop. 
or in verse 2, as you can see there, they raided all the vessels from the temple, and in verse 3, all the VIPs from the palace. And all of Israel's most beautiful utensils and youths are now to be displayed in a foreign land with false gods. And so how must these, these, these teenage boys have felt as they waved goodbye to mom and dad and left Jerusalem? What must these exiles, undergraduates, have thought as they arrived in Shinar, verse 2, knowing that they would be outlanders? in a Babylonian society unless, unless they rejected all their upbringing. Friends, obviously we live two and a half millennium after Daniel and his friends. And yet we must recognize that these are important questions for us to answer because, as I've already said, Christians find themselves in a similar moment. For Christians are those who live in exile. Our citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3. And we live as strangers in the world at 1 Peter 2, for Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, John 18, and yet we must live in this world now, seeking its good and ultimately God's glory as loyal representatives of his kingdom and as God's steadfast students. Accordingly, in exile, what did these students of Israel need to know then, and what do we as God's students now need to know? Well, first point this morning, all students of God must know how they might be devoured by the world. All students of God must know how they might be devoured by the world. What what does happen when these bright and beautiful people of God arrive on a campus of ancient paganism? What awful ordeals will these freshmen endure, and how will this evil culture begin to eat them up? Or perhaps to our surprise, if we know anything about the book of Daniel at all, and the fiery furnaces, and the roaring lions that await, their faithfulness to God is is not initially tested by anything painful. Indeed, quite the opposite. For the Babylonians saw two seemingly easy ways of turning these young students away from God and to the immoral gods of Babylon. And the first of their methods is privilege and praise. For look with me at verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some, not all, some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and the nobility, used without blemish and of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding and learning and competent to stand in the king's palace. Can you see? Can you see that? that the temptation for a full immersion into Babylonian life begins before they even arrive. For just like Carl Shapiro in the 1930s, the desire to be like the university of this world came the moment he discovered that he was liked by the university of this world. Indeed, you can imagine, can't you? The teenage Daniel wandering down in his pajamas and opening up the The college acceptance letter, congratulations, you have made the grade for the University of Shinar, where others have been snubbed, some like you have been chosen for an out-of-state college education, for we adore your beauty, and we admire your brain, and we know all about your blue blood, and we believe that you could stand before the king. Friends, can you see? One of the greatest temptations we will ever endure from the world is, is praise from it and privilege in it. Influential unbelievers whispering in our ears, you're so beautiful, you're so brainy, 
is one of the chief ways we may be devoured. And such insight should be of help to us. It should help us if we are beautiful and brainy. It should help us if we are young in the faith. And I think it should help us if we are parents as we consider what we really desire for our children in this world. You know, one of the most amazing countercultural moments for me as a Christian came when, when one of my best friends sent his first daughter off to school. For when he sent his daughter off on her first day, he told me that, that he'd been really, really praying that his daughter would be seen as average. Not so unattractive or unintelligent that she might be discouraged in the world, but also not too beautiful and not too brainy that she might be devoured by the world. Friends, beauty and intelligence have always been praised by the world, and neither are a curse but a gift. Beauty and intelligence often allow us to be influential in the world, just like Daniel and his friends. But we must know that one of the first temptations to fold on our beliefs and to imitate the world will come when unbelievers tell us just how beautiful we are and just how smart we are and how we may continue to receive privilege and praise if only we would use those gifts for ungodly ends. And some of you know that. Some of you know that only too well. That's why you're tempted at the athletics track to compromise on what you wear. That's why you're tempted at the academic tutorial to compromise on, on what you write. Friends, beware of privilege and praise, and so a flattery from those who ultimately seek your compromise in the world. And yet privilege and praise was not the only subtle uh, Babylonian tactic, was it? For so secondly, and secondly, seemingly harmlessly, the way in which these four undergraduates would be assimilated into the world would also be through the local library. Did you notice that? Verse 4, we imagine Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah all being ushered into their, their, their college dorm rooms by, by great force, and yet no soldier's spear goads them, and no sharp arrowhead touches their back, for they are not taught a lesson by lance or by longbow, but look at verse 4, they are taught lessons in literature and language. In short, these teenagers are to begin to forget the promises of the coming Christ. They are to recall instead the promises of the Chaldeans. And they are to stop reading their Bibles and they are to start reading all the Babylonian stories. For they are to be educated in a new worldview so that they can begin to answer all of life's key questions. The book of Genesis that their mothers read to them as toddlers is to be erased from their memories for they are to have new answers for why they exist. And the book of Exodus that they heard with eagerness in Sunday school classes is to be left outside Babylonian walls for they are to have new answers for who can save. And the books of Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy and Numbers that they heard explained at summer camp are now to be forgotten for they are to have new answers for how one should live and what one can do. The school timetable is secular singing at chapel in the morning and an existential novel book group in the afternoon and a, and a Disney Pixar movie before bedtime. Well, friends, that is how cultures are built. They are built on the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are, about who can save us, and about how we should live. 
And so my Christian friends, just, just ponder for a moment. What literature are you now reading and believing in? What, what language do you ensure that you are speaking now? What pop lyrics do you sing to yourself in the car? What, what book characters are you told to admire? What, what TV shows are you not only watching but actually seeking to emulate? Friends, again, there's nothing wrong with being a culture vulture. Please don't hear me say that, that, that Christians should not have Netflix and that we should be on the lookout for the next children's book to ban. But please do hear me say that Christians are students of God who are to read every alternative story through the lens of God's word. For Christians know, Christians know that every godless culture from 605 BC to 2022 AD seeks to assimilate God's people into the world by teaching them an alternative story. Friends, literature and language are so powerful. And so we must read and we must watch and we must listen with care. And we must do so with our eyes upon the clock. For such an assimilation is often subtle and slow. And if you're in any doubt, look at verse 5. For the Babylonian timetable for Daniel and company it was, it was not a recantation on day one of university, but a degree program lasting, did you see that? Three whole years. For the Babylonians knew that, that the separation from a holy God and holy living would not come through a swift sword, but through the steady soaring of an alternative culture. Babylonian story after Babylonian story. Babylonian show after Babylonian show. Babylonian song after Babylonian song until eventually their faith was severed and they could worship Babylonian gods and plunge deep into immorality. In the words of Hugh Latimer, Bishop of Worcester during the English Reformation, the drop of rain maketh a hole in the stone not by violence, but by often falling. The drop of rain maketh a hole in the stone, not by violence, but by often falling. All students of God must know how they might be devoured by the world. But also, second point this morning, all students of God must know how to show diplomacy in the world. How to show diplomacy in the world. One of the things that really struck me in my preparations uh, upon these opening verses is how these, these four young students of God uh, don't cause much of a scene here. I don't know if you notice that as Laney read it to us, but in this very, very dramatic book, there's not really that much drama in chapter one. Well, these four undergraduates no doubt see through their, their flattering acceptance letters, and these young men seemingly see through all their, their reading and their writing assignments. And then they no doubt know very early on that they are going to be outlanders here. But despite all the parallels with Carl Shapiro, they do not write rude poetry about their university. They do not burn their library cards, they read all the books, and they don't run off home, they make friends on campus, and they don't lock themselves away, they attend class. When they see that their pagan friends are worshipping false gods, they are not obnoxious on Babylonian social media platforms. And when their home comforts are perhaps taken away from them, they don't wear, I've been cancelled by culture t-shirts, some great badge of orthodoxy. Indeed, even when their very own names are changed in verse 7. 
From names all related to the one true God to names associated with the gods of Babylon, these young men accept them and they answer to them and they do so with a please and thank you. For these teenagers understood what the prophet Jeremiah commanded in the 25th chapter of his book, that God's people were to seek the welfare of the place where they would be in exile. And so these boys knew that they were to bless their city by bringing truth and light to Babylon and not by bringing a bar fight to Babylon. And so despite being the perfect age demographic for loving MMA and UFC cage fighting, these young men love their unbelieving neighbors more. And so they not only pick their battles wisely, but you can see that they do so by being a picture of diplomacy towards those in authority over them. And let me say that by and large, our church is wonderful at that too. Friends, many of you here are an absolute model of diplomacy in the world. This past week, I've been at a pastor's conference, and there I saw countless friends in ministry And many of them were just utterly worn out by these past few years in relation to members of their church being so repugnantly combative to the world. And what utterly worn out many a faithful friend was not the positions that their members had taken or even the the, the dangers that they had well observed, but rather the aggressive and discourteous ways in which they'd taken their stance against what their politicians and their police captains and their COVID policy advisors had said. Friends, thank you. Thank you so much for being a church that is, from what I can see, courteous in the world and civil to civil authority. I trust that is not just the outworking of being Southern, but that is the precious work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Seriously, thank you for being like Daniel in verse 9 onwards in how you conduct yourselves with diplomacy and for disagreeing with bosses and principals and fellow doctors and governors politely and not seeking to publicize some kind of poisonous poetry to those that God has put in power. Friends, thank you for having the attitude of Jesus. Isaiah 53 was oppressed and afflicted and yet opened not his mouth was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and yet before its shearers was respectfully silent. For all students of God must know how they might be devoured by the world, and yet also to show diplomacy in the world. But also, and perhaps primarily here, point three, all students of God must know when to draw lines in the world. When to draw lines in the world. In chapter 1, verse 8, we pretty much hit the defining moment of this whole book. We're only a few verses in, but the turning point of verse 8 basically governs the next 12 chapters. And so verse 8, please do look down at this critical verse. But, it starts, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Now, Daniel has signed up to the expensive at Rosetta stone language classes online, and Daniel has gone to the Vanderbilt bookstore to buy the reading list for the whole term ahead, and Daniel has even been to the driver's service center to change his name from a name that's very easy to spell to a name that's worth 35 points in Scrabble. 
But in verse 8, Daniel makes a resolution. Before he sees the sharpness of any lion's teeth, before he feels the heat of any fiery furnace, Daniel sits down in the freshman common room and he draws a line in his mind. And he says to himself, I will never ever defile myself with the king's food and drink. And why is that? Why does Daniel take his stand on the college meal plan and not on his book list or his language class or even the name on his diploma? Well, honestly, I don't know. I don't know. Perhaps this broke the food laws of Leviticus. I don't think we can see with any clarity there. Perhaps this broke the idolatries uh, laws of Deuteronomy, maybe. Perhaps this broke laws about submitting to Israel's king. I just don't think we can say with any certainty, and I don't think we're meant to. For if it were a clear issue of worshipping false gods or of being banned from praying to the one true God, I think that Daniel might have told us. After all, he does in chapter 3 and chapter 6, which we shall come on to. According to me, what he's striking here is not the issue about where the line was drawn, but the fact that this very, very young man, upon arrival, is willing to draw a line somewhere. For at some point, Daniel's conscience cries out and says, I just don't think I can do that as a believer. I think the name change to Balsazar is probably okay as long as I don't worship the god Baal. And I don't think I'm defiling myself by reading as long as I see God's word as, as my primary authority. But I just don't think I can defile myself with all the king's food and drink and sit around his table like I belong here. I'm going to draw a line on the food and drink. I'm going to politely ask if I can have vegetables and water, and I'm going to hope and pray and trust that my diet does not lead to my detention. And friends, when it comes to living this side of heaven, when it comes to living as students of God on this fallen campus, all of us likewise will have to make such calls and to draw lines somewhere in the places where we work and live. And some of those lines will be very, very obvious, won't they? Indeed, we can draw them in, in kind of permanent marker because they are very clear from God's word. Should I scream insults down the phone at my boss at work? Should I get drunk at the bar with my friends? Should I get an abortion after sleeping with my boyfriend? Should I retweet that, that racist blog post on Twitter? Should I practice homosexuality? Should, should I swear at my spouse? Friends, if we're Christians... All of those lines should hopefully be easy to draw, at least in theory. And yet at times, just like Daniel, we will also be called to draw lines in pencil. Firstly, because most day-to-day choices that we face will not be permanent marker issues. But secondly, because many of them will be related to our witness to other people. And because they will influence many other believers. And because our consciences, informed hopefully by God's word, will be pricked by the possibility of us just being like the world. Accordingly, these pencil lines, drawn more hesitantly, pertain to questions like, should I pose my boss if she's not being financially wise? Should I give my boyfriend a kiss before we get married? Should I have one beer at the bar with my friends? Should I spend more than 30 minutes a day on Twitter? 
Should I go to my homosexual friend's wedding reception? Should I let my children watch that movie riddled with coarse joking in it? And friends, in such situations, we must pray, and we must listen to our consciences, and we must listen to other Christians, and we must resolve to do what will help us to be more like Jesus and help other people to see Jesus. But again, the key thing for us to note here is that the student of God is willing to be like Daniel and to draw lines in the world and to face the consequences of it. For the true student of God is willing, indeed resolved, to open up their pencil case and to get out the permanent marker or the pencil and to draw lines to not be like their fellow pupils on the campus of this world. My fear, my fear is that many Christians today are not only reluctant to get out the permanent marker and to draw clear lines around God's word, but also that many Christians today are not willing to draw in pencil ever. Or worse, that they hold the pencil the other way around, that they might erase all the lines that their Christian friend's conscience has drawn, saying God's word does not explicitly say that, and so why are you doing it? Friends, the danger of legalism is significant. And if you have Christian friends who are always drawing in pen on pencil issues, you should gently tell them. But let me ask you, when was the last time that your conscience was pricked by an issue that was unclear in Scripture? When was the last time you thought, I... I know I'm not required to give to every poor person, but I think it might be right in this instance. When was the last time you thought, I I know I'm free to watch this TV show, but I'm not sure that this show will do my soul any good. I think I'll turn it off and go to bed. Friends, we must be willing to listen, not only to the word of God, but to our consciences informed by the word of God, and so be willing to suffer for lines drawn against the world. But was Daniel directly disobeying God's word by having a a Babylonian burger and beer? I don't think so. But he certainly didn't decide to go vegan because he was going to the beach in a few days' time. His conscience was pricked. And he said, I don't think this is right for me. I I, I think this this is probably a worldly assimilation too far. Please give me the chickpea salad. And friends, what about you? What worldly things, which may be permissible, are you willing to go without for the sake of holiness? What lines have you drawn in your mind that hinder relationships with with unbelieving family and friends? What costs are you willing to pay for the sake of listening carefully to your conscience? In what ways are you a light on a hill in a secular society, as a student of God, so obviously not of this world? And does anyone at all in your office or your tutorial group or your sports team know that you are more than just a nominal Christian? Friends, again, God does not want you to withdraw from the world, but he does expect you to draw lines in the world and so live distinctively in it. And yet, friends, particularly if you're young, I want to acknowledge that 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 is hard. That's really hard, isn't it? Indeed, I sense, in a sense, I I don't want to bruise you, 
because I know what it is like to be buffeted by a secular world that hates those who do not just follow them into sin. When I was a high school student in England, I was the only Christian in a year group of 250 pupils. And I was often lonely, and many times scorned for not going down to London and clubbing and smoking cannabis. When I went off to a very secular university, I helped fellow students on, on biology field trips get back to hotels because they were too drunk to walk, and yet I was an outcast for not joining in with them. When I played on sports teams, I'd go home by myself when all my teammates went to obscene clubs afterwards. And even then, I made terrible calls in my youth because I didn't know where to draw godly lines. Friends, it's often difficult often difficult to be a daring Daniel in this depraved world. Daniel, in verse 9, gained favor and compassion in the sight of the chief. And in verse 15, was allowed to continue in his divergent diet, but, but centuries of Christian history and supremely the cross of Christ attest to the fact that it does not always, maybe even normally, end that way. And so, to encourage us as we close... What must all students of God know more than anything else in this world? Well, more than how they might be devoured by the world, and more than how they are to show diplomacy in the world, and more than when they are to draw lines in the world, all students of God must know that God decrees everything in the world. Final point this morning, God decrees everything in the world. In this opening chapter, there is a simple two-word phrase that kind of summarizes the whole of this book, really. And the phrase is found in verse 2 and verse 9 and verse 17. And can you spot that, that repeated phrase? What is it? It is, God gave. Verse 2, and the Lord gave. Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. Verse 9, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chiefs and the eunuchs. Verse 17, and as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Friends, as we proceed on in the, in the book of Daniel together over the next six weeks. It'll be very tempting for us to read these chapters almost like one great political battle between an all-powerful government and Daniel and his three underdog friends. And though we may love a good underdog story, that would be the wrong way to read these chapters, for they are not really a battle at all. Indeed, no chapter in this book represents some kind of great chess match between four plucky Israelite boys and a racist Babylonian establishment. For this book tells us that there is only one grandmaster, God. Only God gets to move the pieces on his chessboard. To all of mighty Babylon, it may have looked. It may have looked as though they had stolen the vessels and the VIPs. To mighty Babylon, it might have looked as though they had shown favor to Daniel and that they had given out the textbooks and that they had taught these youths well. But actually, God gave. 
God had decreed it all. God had given the evil king Jehoiakim over to Babylon. God had given Nebuchadnezzar the, the temple gold to borrow for a bit. God had given Babylon. Daniel and his friends to educate them. God had given Daniel favor with the officials, and God had given Daniel learning and the ability to interpret dreams so that God's grand plan of salvation might be seen all over the world. And so in chapter one, above all, we learn that God decreed these students' place in history, that God had placed down four of his student chess pieces right where he wanted them at that time in the year 605 BC to showcase his glorious plan and his great holiness, even though sometimes that distinctiveness undeniably caused them great distress and caused them to doubt God's promises. And so my Christian friend, what a challenge to us. What a challenge to us when we perhaps complain at the situation and the circumstances in which God has decreed for us today. What a challenge to those of us who long to live in a different era for the sake of an easier Christian life. Thinking, I wish I lived in England in the, in, in the 1650s. Or thinking, I wish I lived in the United States in the, in the 1950s. Friends, what a challenge to us to remember that it is God who has given you this city, this country, at this time. And that it is God who has given you your job and your skills and your opportunities with your colleagues and your family members to be able to glorify him well and to live distinctively for him, whether that is easy or whether that is hard. And so, friends, more than a challenge, what a wonderful encouragement to know that God has given you all those circumstances and skills to glorify him in this particular season, whether it is easy or hard. For, friends, that is why that's why we're able to live for him. The knowledge that God gives helps us not to give up. For we know that God has given us everything we need and that he decrees the end from the beginning. In fact, that is why we live as Christians. For we know that we don't live in some kind of historical vacuum. And so we are not dead fish that go with the flow of whatever decade we live in. And we're not chameleons who change color with the moral trends of this century. Because we know where we are in God's grand story. And we know where God is giving and beginning ends. God's giving began in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 129, I give you every plant for good food. And God's giving continued throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Exodus 24, I give you these tablets of stone with the law which I have given for your instruction. And when we all, every single one of us, broke that law, God's ultimate giving was in the gift of his very son. John 3:16. for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so we know that at the end, God will indeed give eternal life and unending joy to those who believe and follow his son, Revelation 21.6, it is done. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the waters of eternal life. Accordingly, friends, to conclude, if you are not a Christian here this morning, if you're a student of the world, 
and not a student of God, if you think that your, your Christian friends and, and family are just pretty mad to embark upon an education in holiness here, when you believe that the best possible education is one by which you become a moral chameleon such that you may be admired by the world. Friends, if that is you, if that is you, have you considered what God gives to his students at the end of their days if they remain faithful to his program? Just a few months before Carl Shapiro set off for university, where, for the sake of worldly recognition, he had to let go of his religion. Another man across the pond in England, at the exact same time, was teaching at another highly elitist university. And unlike Shapiro, this man was deeply loved by the world. Indeed, the world had given this man every imaginable accolade for his, his atheism. Three first-class honors degrees in literature and language, a very prestigious career as a tutor of philosophy, and the title of fellow at Oxford University. And yet in 1931, this man, C.S. Lewis, who had been given everything by the world, came to realize what God had given in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And accordingly, Lewis wrote, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Friends, I've got no idea what is being offered to you in your degree program as a student of this world. But I would suggest that your masters in worldliness might just be a mud pie when compared to what God has given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so before you reject what God has given and conclude that the price of Christianity is just too high, why not ask your Christian friends why they are willing to be seen as outlanders in the university of this world? Why not stick around for Daniel chapter 2 next week? For now, let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we confess that we are weak and that we are easily wounded. Father, we admit that we find it hard to follow Jesus and so be seen as an outlander here for the sake of him. And so, Father, would you, by your Holy Spirit, teach us to see the dangers of being devoured by this world. By your Holy Spirit, would you help us to show diplomacy in your world? Help us to be kind and polite to those who are not like us. And Father, teach us to draw lines in this world and where to draw them carefully. Help us to be informed by conscience and ultimately your word. And help us not to live on in worldliness, despite the suffering it may bring us. 
And above all, Father, would you please help us to remember that you wonderfully decree all, that you have given us our time and place and history, and that you've given us everything we need, and that you are sovereign and savior, and that you have laid the ends and the beginnings, and at the end, eternal life, to those who are your faithful students. And so, Father, help us. Help us to be who we are for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.